Amen. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me, beloved, to the Gospel of Mark. Many thanks to Brady and Diana for leading us in worship to God who is worthy to receive it. What amazing lyrics in that last song. That is enough for us to chew on for the rest of Sunday. Beloved, as we hold our scriptures in our hands, let us remember that it was this week, in 1536, that William Tyndale was martyred. After being first strangled and then burned at the stake, for daring to translate the word of God into the language of the common man. And his last words, as the fires licked him, cried, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And the Lord hears the cry of the martyrs. And in this case, he answered mightily Tyndale's final request. Less than four years later, every church and parish in England was required to have a copy of the scriptures available in English for any parishioner to read at any time. The English Bible you hold in your hands, indeed the English Bibles that are underneath the seats, stand on the shoulders of men like Tyndale. We cherish that sacrifice this morning that makes our study and our edification possible. So let us not forget our lineage, our heritage, our legacy as Christians. We stand on the shoulders of giants to whom we are eternally grateful. Amen? Amen. Well, last week we watched as the curtain rose on the final act of our gospel. We began Passion Week. A full one-third of Mark's gospel dedicated to the last week of our Savior's life. And of course, as we mentioned, John and his gospel dedicates a full one-half of his gospel to the final week. Meaning we cannot miss the primacy of this time. Everything up until this point has been building and culminating toward the empty tomb. Each step is a step toward fulfillment. And as we launched out last week, we were made to reflect upon the incredible intricacy and sovereignty of God's divine timetable. We are witnessing and beholding the execution of planning from before time was even created. God knew when he made Adam that he would sin, and a plan was already in place to reconcile a people back to God, a people for his own possession. And so we began the Passion Week where all will be culminated, where justice and mercy will meet at Calvary, satisfying the wrath of Almighty God, brokering a peace between sinner and pure holiness, a week that will end in God being both just and the justifier. Truly the greatest miracle accomplished, that of saving men, of reconciling man to his maker. Yet while we look toward the destination, that of the empty tomb with great anticipation, we marvel at the journey along the way. The twists and turns of Passion Week as wicked men devise evil plans. Remember this truth, saints, as we see evil flourishing even in our world, where it seems to run unchecked, growing more wicked by the day, waxing worse. As bad as the news that we, is, is that we see on the news, never was it so bad and so evil and so wicked as the day they slayed perfection on the cross. 
It was the most diabolical act ever committed because of the perfection of Jesus. The most evil act in history was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And yet God used the most evil act to accomplish the greatest good. God allows that which he hates to accomplish that which he loves. Hold that truth closely. Not only as we wind our way through the beauty and the tragedy of Passion Week, but as we witness the increasing evil of our own world. We began last week with the first part of our two-part series titled, How to Miss a King. And today that title will come much more clear into focus as we dive into the incredible scene often known as the triumphal entry. Part one found Jesus having left Jericho and arriving in Bethany, a small village about two miles to the southeast of Jerusalem, for what will be Jesus' headquarters for Passion Week, mainly owed to the fact that this was home to Mary, Martha, and of course, Lazarus whom Jesus had raised from the dead. We saw both from our text last week and from John's telling in chapter 12 that quite a crowd had gathered in Bethany around Jesus. And recall John's telling in chapter 12, verse 9, then the large crowd from the Jews learned that he was there. And they came, not because of Jesus only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So we find that we have three sources of this large crowd. Now, some had followed Jesus and come up with him on the road from Jericho. There's one crowd. And still more came from Bethany itself. This was no small stir in a village the size of Bethany when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And now Jesus was back. And finally, and probably most substantially, is our third group from Jerusalem having now swelled to over 2 million people for Passover week. And the topic du jour was always what? Messiah. Who will free us? Who will ride in on a white horse and overthrow this Roman oppression? And here, only two miles away, words surged through Jerusalem of a miracle in Bethany. Now, that's a short enough walk that many would go and see for themselves what this was. If it is as Lazarus says it is, and Mary and Martha say it is, this could be Messiah. And Jesus does something very different with this attention from the crowd. Normally he would tell someone he healed what? To go their way and to tell no one. Recall when Jesus fed the multitudes, he had to bail out because they wanted to take him and force him to be king. But not now. Now he allows the crowds to gather. He allows them to grow. He will allow them to make a public spectacle in the most public of places. Why? Because it's time. It's time. Ultimately, Jesus and his disciples will have passed through 35 different places on the road to the city of the great king. They have moved through Galilee, Samaria, Perea, and Judea, stopping, preaching, healing, and moving on, the buzz increasing and increasing with every passing miracle. And this gathered crowd would be the mechanism by which the ire of the religious elite would be further kindled to perform evil. The chief priests did not care for the kingdom of God, which would stand before them in the flesh. They cared about their own kingdom 
their own position, their own prestige and honor in the marketplace. If you are lavishing attention on another, that's honor that's not being given to me. And he must be dealt with. Yet we marvel at God's timing and plan. Who knew when he raised Lazarus from the dead? Sending a signal flare only two miles from Jerusalem. That he was laying the groundwork for his own death. It would be the testimony of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus that would draw the very crowd that we will see today, which would provoke the the elite, which will result in you and I sitting here today as a redeemed people. All according to plan, all according to prophecy, down to the day. Now this day, as we observed last week, being the 10th day of Nisan, the first month of the Jewish calendar on the 10th day. And what does God command? Exodus 12, verse 3, we read, Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. It was on the tenth day of Nisan that the lamb would be selected and brought into Jerusalem, where it would be watched over for four days during the Passover, being sacrificed that Friday. Well, the lamb has been selected, and it is perfect, it is without blemish, and it will enter Jerusalem on the tenth day of Nisan. Zechariah 9.9, we see the prophecy, it reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon a donkey. And upon a colt, the foal of a donkey. But the prophecy doesn't stop there. The timing of the day doesn't rest solely there. Here our text runs headlong into what is often known as the very backbone of biblical prophecy. Now those in our adult Sunday school know that we're studying Ezra right now. A fascinating book about the return of God's people to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And one of the main players in that study is King Artaxerxes. In Daniel 9, we see a critical prophecy. Daniel 9, verse 24, I'll go through verse 26. This is what's known as the 77s. Listen to God's planning. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. And have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. I hope you have your thinking caps on here. Follow this math here. And behold the wonder of God. We could quite literally do an entire ten part series just on the verses we read there. But I'm going to give you the cliff notes as it relates to our text today. Daniel is receiving this information. 
in response to his prayer that he's made in the preceding verses. So we know the context for the 77s. Jerusalem lay in ruins when Daniel wrote this. And according to the prophecy, from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem by Artaxerxes, and we know exactly when that was from Nehemiah 2 verse 1, it was the 20th year of his reign in the month of Nisan, there would be seven seven-year periods. That's 49 years. And 62 more seven-year periods, which is 434 years. Altogether, that's 483 years. Your head spinning yet? 483 years, Messiah Prince would show up. And after the culmination of the 483rd year, the Messiah would be cut off. Now, Daniel did not use the Gregorian calendar like we use. They only had 360 days a year in their calendar. So 483 years times 360 days in a year is 173,880 days. Does anyone care to guess what happened 173,880 days after King Artaxerxes gave his order to rebuild Jerusalem in the 20th year of his reign in the month of Nisan? Down to the day. Messiah will ride in, lowly and on a donkey. The Messiah Prince will enter Jerusalem to be cut off. If that doesn't blow your mind, on the sovereignty of God. I don't know what will. Today the king was about to ride before them. But as we will see, they're going to miss him entirely. So with that, let's look to our text this morning, beloved. Mark 11, verse 7 through 11. And they brought the colt to Jesus and put their garments on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their garments in the road And others spread leafy branches, having cut them from the fields. And those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we dive even deeper into your entry into Jerusalem, Lord, where the Messiah Prince would be cut off in perfect prophecy, in perfect divine timetable, we ask, Lord, that you would illuminate this text for us. We ask, Lord, that you would allow this pastor to get out of the way of the word, Lord, that the Holy Spirit may wield it in its proper way. Lord, we ask that the lessons that are contained in this, which are many and are deep and are difficult for us to grasp, and yet, Lord, so simple that a child can grasp it. Lord, we're desperate, needy creatures this morning. We ask that you would abide and attend to your word. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, in every culture since the beginning, good rulers and kings have sought ways to show that they are servants of the people. While they may be a king, they desire to show that they have been placed there to serve. 
Now, whether it's a politician serving the troops a, a meal on the battlefield or the Queen of England who used to drive herself around in a very normal car around her estate, rulers have always tried to present themselves as servants of the people. And in biblical times, there were many ways to do that. And we notice actually in a number of places, particularly in the book of Judges, that kings and powerful men would ride on donkeys to show that they came as a servant of the people. Just consider a few examples. One in Judges 10 reads, He was followed by Jair of Gilead, who led Israel 22 years. He had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys. They controlled 30 towns in Gilead, which to this day are called Havath Jair. And of course, similarly in Judges 12, after him, Abdon, son of Hillel, from Pirathon, led Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys. He led Israel eight years. The donkey is a demonstration that I am a servant of the people. Now, if they wished to present themselves as a warrior, what would they ride in front of the people? A horse. Donkey is servant. Horse is warrior. And indeed, I'm sure there was a time for both in every ancient leader or king's life. And as we will see, there will be a time for both in the king of kings' life. But today is a donkey, a colt. Sproul writes, quote, Deeply rooted in the Jewish consciousness of the Old Testament was the hope of the king who would enter Jerusalem as their coming Messiah while riding on a donkey, close quote. Of course, hearkening back to the Old Testament, Jesus would come as a servant. But whoever would be great among you, Matthew 20, must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. There will be no white horse, not yet. He is not the warrior king just yet. But that, as we will see, will pose a very big problem. In fact, we will see as we unfold this text, it is the very lowliness on a donkey that will be the very catalyst for his death. Hebert, in his commentary, writes, quote, The donkey was the animal of peaceful daily pursuits and was not associated with thoughts of conquest as the horse was. He did not present himself as the glorious, irresistible ruler that their messianic expectations had conceived. Close quote. This is how to miss a king. Let us see the scene in our mind's eye here now, beloved, beginning with verse 7. And they brought the colt to Jesus and put their garments on it, and he sat on it. So here we are. It's go time. And understand how this proceeded through. We need a right picture. So where did Jesus mount the donkey? Back in Bethany, right? Do we already have a massive crowd there? Well, we know that we do, right? From three different locations and sources. And what we have already at this point is a, a basically a massive 1.8 mile procession. As they would pass by other homes along the way, it would gather and gather, and it would grow and grow. They were not all waiting inside the gate at Jerusalem. They were there with Jesus, walking and following, getting larger and larger. 
Now, many people and many historians estimate that the crowd both followed Jesus and that eventually would throng inside Jerusalem was a few hundred thousand. Now, we need to see and know that number. It's not a hundred people. It's a few hundred thousand. And if we consider the population of Jerusalem had now swelled to over two million, that's pretty easy to see. Now, why does that matter? Because it would be very noticed and would drive the religious elite mad. They have hated Jesus for three years now as he has called them out on their wickedness. And now we have a few hundred thousand of them that have turned up for him. That would enrage them even further. But it's all to plan. We're poking the bear right on schedule, aren't we? And we know that they're gunning for him. Why? John tells us in his gospel, John eleven fifty seven. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. And this was before Jesus' triumphal entry. Just imagine after. So as our procession continues, the scene further develops. Look to verse 8. Look to verse 8, beloved. And many spread their garments in the road. And others spread leafy branches, having cut them from the fields. So observe that we are still outside Jerusalem at this, at this time. You'll notice that we don't show Jesus actually entering Jerusalem and through the gate until verse 11. Matthew's account agrees with that. So the vast majority of this burgeoning crowd, this entire scene in our mind's eye, is not happening as Jesus comes through the gate in Jerusalem as so many imagine, it's on the road to the gate. That's where this scene is happening. In fact, Matthew's account shows people inside of the gate of Jerusalem asking, hey, who's this guy, right? The crowd was not gathered inside the gate, though perhaps probably some ran ahead and congregated. But this whole scene is on the road to Jerusalem. And that's not because Jerusalem, the city, was not aware of Jesus. In fact, it's just the opposite. Matthew tells us that all the city was stirred. And he uses the word that we derive the word seismic from, meaning Jerusalem shook with the excitement of a possible Messiah so close by. However, there were no cell phones. You could not text ahead and say, hey, we're coming in the main gate and Jesus is with us. So no doubt many ran ahead as they heard. But up until this point, beloved, in the New Testament, this is the largest public outpouring and honor Jesus has allowed to be given to him. Again, why? Because it's time. In verse 8, we begin to see two elements introduced. What do we see? We see garments and we see leafy branches or palms. Now, why first do we care about garments being put on the ground in front of Jesus? Well, a few reasons. This would, of course, been a person's outer garment, their outer garment. And that's significant because most people of that day were quite poor. Guess how many outer garments you had? Just one. To put it in the dirt and allow an animal to walk on it would damage it. It would dirty it. But this is how we show the highest honor. This is how we tell the king that we are below you, that we willingly place ourselves under your feet. And this practice was well-founded in the Old Testament as well. We see as Jehu is being pronounced king in 2 Kings chapter 9. Listen, it says, thus says the Lord, 
I have anointed you king over Israel. Then they hurried, and each man took his garment and placed it under him on the bare steps and blew the trumpet, saying, Jehu is king. Well, of course, Jesus is king. But they're going to miss the king and his true kingship entirely. So having seen their outer garments put on the ground before him, we now see the infamous palms. Now, we could go into much detail on the significance of the palm. It's chocked full of symbolism. But here the palms are not a cause for us, the reader, to rejoice. They are, in fact, one more evidence that they were missing the king. Palms, beloved, were historically symbols of victory. William Barclay observes that, quote, Simon Maccabeus entered Jerusalem 150 years before, after he had blasted Israel's enemies in battle on the 23rd day of the second month in the 171st year the Jews entered it, with, among many other things, palm branches, because a great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel, close quote. In fact, the palm was the symbol of the Maccabean revolt. The palm was a symbol of triumph and victory in classical antiquity. The Romans would give victors of military battles palms as gifts. Do we see where this is going? Those of us who have been with, a, been with us from the beginning of Mark have seen this time and again from the crowd, haven't we? What do these people want? They want their victorious, conquering, military messiah who would overthrow these cursed Romans and free them once and for all. That was their understanding. And these patriotic Jews stood ready to crown anyone king who looked like they might fit the bill. And so our question begins to form as we observe this crowd. What king do they actually want? Whose terms are they coming on? Jesus' terms? Blessed are the peacemakers? Blessed are the poor in spirit? The Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount? Do they want him? Do they want that king? Whose terms have brought this crowd here today? And sadly, the entire messianic teaching of Judaic culture tells us why they are here. The palms tell us why they are here. But we have even more evidence. Let us look to their own words. Look into verse 9 and 10. I'll read those as one. Verse 9 and 10. And those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now I want to apologize to some in advance. Much like learning that Jesus and his father Joseph worked more with stones as tectons rather than as carpenters of wood, this scene is also the victim of some inaccurate pictures or some Hollywood representation. I'm willing to wager that when many picture this scene that we just read, it is one of joyous praise. Happy children waving palms of smiling people. I bet you envisioned a festive atmosphere. Well, I want to draw your attention to the most prominent word from the crowd here. And that is the word Hosanna. Now, to the modern ear, Hosanna is a term of praise. We have made it a word of worship. I'm sure you could 
hum a few songs right now that incorporate the word Hosanna, and they would likely be a very joyous tune. However, Hosanna is not an expression of praise at all. It is an expression of an agonizing prayer, of supplication, and of a pleading desperation. Our English word, Hosanna, comes from the Hebrew phrase, Hoshiana. This is an incredibly unique phrase, as it's only found in one other place in all of Scripture. And that's really helpful for us because it eliminates the entire semantic range of the word. It boils its context down to only one usage. We find Hoshiana used by the psalmist in Psalm 118.25. It reads, O Lord, do save. We beseech thee. O Lord, we beseech thee. This is a cry from the psalmist to God for help. This is akin to somebody jumping off a boat without knowing how to swim. And they come up flailing and gasping. Help me. Save me. Hoshiana. So as Jesus is riding along the road, the crowds are shouting what? Save us. Save us. Deliver us. We are desperate. Save them from what? From what do they want deliverance? From from that, what is driving their their desperate cry? We know what it is. It's Roman oppression. That's what is in front and center in their minds and in their hearts of this entire crowd. Military Messiah, deliver us. And that's a tragedy, isn't it? Is that what Jesus came for? Were those the terms set out by God? That he would save them from this Roman oppression? No. They are missing the king entirely. They have a preconceived notion of who Jesus is and what he's supposed to do for them. They've come to the king on their terms. Are they desperate? Yes. But they're desperately wrong. Are they sincere? Again, yes. But we can be sincerely wrong. We are reminded, beloved, that it is not the sincerity or the intensity with which we believe something that determines its truth. It is the object of that worship that determines its truth. So while they are crying out to Jesus, save us, Hoshiana, who is the object of their honor and worship to whom they cry? Who is the Savior in their mind and in their heart at that time? What have they fashioned? Is he the one revealed to come in the Old Testament? No. He is a Savior that has been created through the eyes of their Judaic culture. Meaning they have it backwards. Beloved, we must grab hold of this. They have read and interpreted their scripture through the eyes of their circumstance, their oppression, and their situation. Rather than reading their circumstance, their oppression, and their situation through the eyes of Scripture. We must get this. What is the lens for this burgeoning crowd today? Their position as an oppressed people was their lens. And it caused them to seek after a false messiah. They would miss the king entirely. It is this very phenomenon that drives things like liberation theology today that we see in what some term the black church. 
seeing and reading their Bible through the lens of having been an oppressed people, having been enslaved. Those are the goggles. Those are the lenses. And now everything is read through the lens of being delivered out of Egypt, of being liberated. And sadly, the results are some truly abhorrent and heretical teaching that's pervasive in that movement. I've been asked by some how a particular ethnic group seems to go to their church on Sunday and then can go vote for a block for a particular party that stands in everything opposed to their faith. How do these people do that? Well, when we understand that they are reading the scripture through the lens of their history, rather than reading their history through the lens of their scripture, it makes sense. We will vote for whoever will continue to lead us out of bondage and toward the promised land. It's the exact same scene in our text today. We have a whole world that is willing to coronate a Jesus, king of their life, on their terms. There's nothing new under the sun. Black liberation theology is just one of the most prevalent today. Did you know that there is a feminist Bible? It is called the Feminist Bible. It puts on the lens of being a woman and reads the Bible like that, looking and highlighting all the places that women were oppressed in the Bible or where women were empowered in the Bible. Is being a woman supposed to impact how we read our Bible? Or is reading the Bible supposed to impact the kind of woman we are? Elizabeth Elliot captured the heart of this so beautifully when she said, quote, the fact that I am a woman does not make me a different kind of Christian, but the fact that I am a Christian makes me a different kind of woman. What is to come first? Scripture is our lens. First, first. Your skin color matters not. Your gender matters not. If it does, not, if it does matter, you're going to read Scripture through that lens. And beloved, you're going to miss the king entirely. The entire process is backwards. It's the same in our text. Their lens was as an oppressed group of people. And it caused them to miss the king entirely. Jesus did not come to save you from the Romans. He came to save you out of your sin. You cry out for deliverance from an oppressor. But no oppressor is greater than the taskmaster of Satan. None. The Jesus on the donkey before them came to defeat the works of the devil, 1 John 3, 8. That's why he came. That's the mission. That's the creed. If you have something or someone else in mind, it's a different Jesus. And how many in the world today wave the palms, cry out for deliverance to a Jesus not reflected in Scripture? For example, we saw that a third of evangelicals today are worshiping, according to the state of theology polling, a created Jesus, didn't we? He is the first and greatest created being, they say. That's a different Jesus than the Alpha and Omega revealed in Scripture. How many will stand utterly confused before him on that fateful day when he commands that they depart from him? I never knew you. But what do you mean? Lord, Lord, I called out Hoshiana to you. How can you not know me? I was in that crowd. I put my only coat on the ground for you to walk upon. How can you not know me? How did I miss the king? Because why you came to me is not why I came to you. 
You are concerned with the relief of your situation. You are concerned with your happiness. I am here to deal with your holiness. I am here to deal with the sin issue that blackens the heart. And if we saw the blackness of our sin, our oppression by a Roman occupier would be a mere footnote in our story. Is man's greatest problem their oppression or is it their sin? If it's your victim status, you'll miss the king. If it's a savior from sin, not only have we not missed him, but 2,000 years later, he still stands ready to forgive and to save. He hasn't moved. But sadly, this is not to be the case in our text today. Jesus was there to offer salvation, but not as they are seeing it. And yet, as long as Jesus doesn't shatter this expectation of the people of why he's there, they're going to continue their adulation. They're beseeching their kingly honor unto him. We will worship and serve this man who has come within our expectations and on our terms. Question, beloved. What will happen when this same crowd, these same people, just a few short days later, see their supposed conquering military hero Messiah strapped to a pole being flogged, the flesh being ripped from his side so you could see his very innards? The image is shattered. Their expectations go wildly unmet, and they turn on him in an instant. Crucify him. Crucify him. Same crowd. Just a few days later, people will sing for Jesus. They will shout for Jesus. They will cry, Lord, Lord. But they call him Lord and King on their terms. And when their expectations are shattered, they feel they've been hoodwinked. They've been lied to. And they get angry. And they cry, crucify him. Our nation is filled with those who have come to Jesus on their terms. They have molded and crafted an image of God that they can cozy up to. They might even name him Jesus. But the rains came. The storms blew. The tragedy of life struck. The oppression remained. The circumstance didn't change. And they rise up in their hearts and they cry, crucify him. I was lied to. I was promised peace and prosperity. I went to that church and they were hypocrites. That person claimed to be a Christian and they hurt me. Crucify him. We will come on the king. We will come to the king on his terms, beloved, or we will not come at all. John 10:1 tells us, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. And when the rains and floods of life come, they will be washed away, looking for someone to blame. And they will cry in their heart, crucify him. Do for me what I want, and I will call you Lord and King. That's the reality of the crowd here. Final verse, verse 11. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything... He left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. Well, this is one of those amazing scenes that is so easily missed. Do we realize what has just taken place? Jesus has now finally entered into the walls of Jerusalem, and he's walked into the temple. Pause there. 
Yeah, I don't know if you remember, but some time ago there was a television show. I never actually saw it, but it was called Undercover Boss. And of course, the premise of it was that the CEOs and the owners of these companies would go to work incognito at their own companies, right? People never knowing who they were until they finally revealed themselves. Now, it allowed the bosses to see how things actually were. What was the true state of affairs? This is the temple. Jesus owns this place. He's the king of this temple. He was in their midst, and he wanted to see the state of affairs, and it was not good. Now, because of the time of day, because it was already so late, Jesus was just there to observe today, just to take it all in. The king was in their midst, and they had no idea. The temple missed the very one that they were there to worship. They missed the king entirely. One commentator observes this quote, This was an official visit of the king of Israel an inspection tour of the heart of the nation. He went into the temple where the very heartbeat of the nation was throbbing, represented in the worship that was lifted up to God. And he looked at everything, and we know what he saw. Commercialism, money changers, exploitation, corruption, and injustice. He saw dirt, filth, squalor, pride, hypocrisy, and haughtiness. He saw that religious ceremonies were being carried on without any meaning whatsoever, close quote. All would leave the temple that day. All that were there would leave the temple that day, having never known that the king was in their midst, observing them all. They would go home that night in perfect peace, having no qualms with their day, in fact, probably feeling pretty good about themselves that they had accomplished their religious duties for the week. All the while, they were storing up for themselves wrath, Wrath that we would be revealed on the very next day when Jesus revisits the temple in a holy anger, driving out the money changers and flipping over the tables. Beloved, there are many in our world who are disillusioned with Christ or with the church as they see it. We all have them in our families. There may even be some here today. So-called religion did not do what it was promised, what I was promised it would do. And many have turned on him because he did not do what we think he should have. Friends, that means that you came on your terms, not on his. His terms are not prosperity or health or wealth. The Son of Man did not even have a place to lay his head. His terms are to bid thee come and die. Come take up your cross and follow me. Let the dead bury their own dead. You follow me. The Christian life is not a call to self-fulfillment. It's a call to self-denial. Some can spend an entire life in a church pew and miss the king. They've waved their palms their whole life and they miss the king. They cried out for deliverance from the woes of life and they miss the king. Let it not be said of those listening today. Beloved, his terms are surrender. His terms are repentance and faith. And in exchange, he promises that we will have pain in this world. Suffering, trouble, and joy unspeakable. A heavenly reward where Christ is our prize, having kept us through all life storms, That's quite an exchange. Let us not miss the king.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we allow the word to take hold in our hearts, we are shown so many places where we have missed you entirely. Lord, as we consider the word that has been brought before us, we ask for your forgiveness. We ask, Lord, that if there be any untoward way in us, if there be a place where we have missed your radiance and your glory, Lord, if even we have come in another gate in another way, Lord, if we be a thief and a robber today, Lord, we ask that we might go back and come in the narrow gate. Lord, that we might see who is our mighty king riding on a donkey. Be with us this week, we pray. Keep us until we can meet again. In Jesus' mighty name.